So, uh, how was the con? It was a lot of fun. We got busy, busy, six panels, but we got through it. We had some good crowds, some good interaction, met some good people, uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We missed you out there, though. Yeah, I mean, I'll do Dragon Con. Now that we're done with Colossal Con and your sixth panel, it's Lucas time, baby. That's right, folks. Your boy's back at Dragon Con. Let's go. How many How many talks do you get? I usually, uh, That's the fun part about Dragon Con is like when you sign up as a guest professional, they're like, cool. What's your expertise? I'm like, well, I talk about fish and animal. Cool, you're on this panel and the ones you suggested. They'll put you on other people's panels. I don't like that. No, it's actually really cool because you get to be with other experts and you actually get to like talk with them. I got to be, um, before your time of this podcast, I actually got to be part of a group of people talking about Frankenstein's monster and like comparing it to things like the mammoth that's being unfrozen and talking about the book, not just from a literary standpoint, but from a scientific and ethical standpoint. And that was really cool. Okay, okay. Yeah, like it's it's fun. It's a lot of fun to get to be a guest professional out there. I adore it. Plus, they give me a free ticket and it's pretty phenomenal. But today's episode, obviously, Don and Madison can't be with us. Don had work things. But Madison actually ha- left us a little gift. She actually got to interview one of her friends who specializes in localization. So this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. It's not like a major super topic on Pokemon this time. So if it's not, not your thing, I'll come up with a lecture next week. I promise it's not going to happen all the time, but it's really cool that we know someone who actually works in getting the games that we love into the language we can understand. And I'm looking forward to learning about it. No, it, it's, it'll be a very interesting interview. I'm excited for people to hear it. Plus, we also got news, and, I lo- and we got the good kind of news, the kind we waited months for. So without further ado, cue the music. All right, Lucas, now it's time for the news that everyone has been waiting for us to talk about for weeks. Hit me. Bees are fish. That's what everyone's been waiting to hear. Bees are fish. But only in California. (laughs) Only in California. Bees are technically fish. Now, you might have seen this meme popping up if you're into the environmental side of the internet. If you haven't, allow me to explain. So, in the state of California, when the Endangered Species Act was passed on the state level, there was a problem. They included a whole bunch of stuff, but they did not include invertebrates. Now, to some of us, that might be like, oh, that's a pretty major oversight to think of. But if you're really thinking about it, no one cares about invertebrates as a whole. The general public would not view that necessarily as an oversight, especially when the Endangered Species Act was passed. Yeah, like when the Endangered Species Act was passed, our goal was bald eagles. Honestly, when it comes to invertebrates, if you were to walk out and walk with a big old sign that said, save the spiders, no one's going to care. They'll think you're a weirdo and take pictures with you. You might get a few people who go like, yeah, save them spiders. But let's be honest. The general public does not care whether they live or die. Specifically, they probably care more that they're dead. They don't like spiders. I was going to say, our, our guest from that insect episode a couple months back, Matt, would probably care. Yeah, but like only the people who actually learned ignorance about these animals is what's causing this problem so back to the bees and the fish in order to better protect the native bees there was a loophole that's in the law it turns out that when they included fish they also included a clause that said invertebrates so things like mollusks and bivalves you know clams and stuff that people actually do care about for food purposes yeah so if you're able to slip the bees in as an invertebrate under the fish category, then yes, they can get their protection. Now, back in 2020, this ruling was uh, shot down. But recently, uh, about a week ago, it was said, oh, no, it's um, 
it's we're gonna strike down that ruling. Bees are fish. So long as it saves them, bees are fish. It, get the job done however you can. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's dumb, but it's just so like oh my gosh, it's so it's so smart. I mean, it's working within the frameworks that you have to. I wonder what kind of fish you would count. Would like a spider? Like I like just throwing things like fish, spider, fish, like dragonfly, fish, beetle, fish. (laughs) Like just keep on worm, long fish. Like just just keep everything as fish. My gosh, by that definition, the aquarium I'm working at, we could do whatever we wanted. Like, oh my gosh, you have a spider collection? Actually, it's our new aquarium. Look at all the fish. They're spinning webs and laying eggs, just as all fish do. Well, we're laughing now, but then in 100 years, we'll have a spider fish. I mean, we already have, like, a starfish, and, like, they're not actually fish. It's fine. It's not the first time we've named something in the ocean a fish that's not a fish. Actually, silverfish are a bug that aren't even a fish at all. Humans, I mean, humans just make stuff up. Indeed. Now, we do have some Pokemon news. Yes, first, let's hit some VGC stuff, uh, circa, or from, via Dawn. Uh, so we have the Milan special event that just happened. Um, and the, uh, a lot of the usual characters in terms of the teams that showed up, I think that in the top eight, seven had Incin on them. A pretty even mix of Groudon and Kyogre, but the team that won was actually, uh, Shedinja, Porygon 2 and Galar Moltres. Let's go, my undead boy, Flavio Del Pidio. Overall, uh, Flavio's team was Zacian, Kyogre, Incin, Shedinja, Porygon 2, Galar Moltres. I love Galar Moltres. I wish it had a little bit more staying power. I just think that it got here and then Regieleki came and like blew everything up. You know what Regieleki reminds me of? Uh, have you ever watched Ed and Nettie? Yeah. It's that scene where Ed is picking up all the static electricity, like, just all over the house. He's drawing all the electricals out, and then he goes over to Double D, and he's like, zappity zap zap, Double D, and just blows up the house with the electricity. Like, that's all I see when I see Reggie Lecky now. It's just Ed running around with static electricity. If y'all don't know what I'm talking about, you're a Zoomer, and you don't know any better. It's fine. Go go watch Ed, Ed, and Eddie. It's great. It's timeless. But also, in the top in the top eight, we have a slow bro. Yeah, I was looking at that. Look at that little dude. I guess Umbreon. I mean, Umbreon pops up every now and then. Incineroar, 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 Incineroar. I am going to give a shout out really quickly to Luca Marcato. Luca Marcato for not using an Incineroar. Thank you, my man. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see how... So you have to get to eighth place to get the first non-Incin. Yeah. I mean... I literally just did an episode about Pokemon that have insi- that have Intimidate. Incineroar has it. He deserves it. And I hate it. In the in the top 64, only 12 teams did not use Incin. In the top 64, only 12? Yeah. I'm done. I'm out. Later. I'm gone. Later. No more. I quit. Now this is just the Chris show. <laughs> okay, I'm back. It's always me. I'll always be here. I can't die. Incin will be here until we have something that can counter Incin outright. I'm not the one who's super into VGC. That's you and Don who's closer to that field now. But honestly, I think we're going to lose Incin in the first year of Scarlet and Violet. Because it's always going to be the tournament of what we're going to only play with Pokemon you could find in that region before we branch out. I am of the opinion that if you don't like it, beat it. 
it is what it is. I think the thing that might actually decrease the amount of incense is if we finally get a um, special attack intimidate. That would be pretty good. Also, maybe just pack more Milotics, I guess. That's usually my solve for the problem. Yeah. No, I think I think if there was another option to intimidate, because like obviously people bring special attacks to counter incense. So if you get a special attack debuff then i think that's where you might start seeing a little bit more variation in that in that debuffing ability section yeah but on to scarlet and violet we finally got a trailer after i openly complained on our show you see what that does for you so i was a little bit disappointed because i was expecting more from the trailer but you were expecting more than five pokemon and two professors and a rival i was expecting more than three minutes but it is what it is we got the, we got professors, we got legendaries, we got a couple new mons. The last I looked it up, the last time they did a second trailer, it was around this same time and we learned like about Dynamaxing. Right, I remember that. I remember that. So like we we learned about the new gimmick. What if Scarlet and Violet doesn't have a gimmick? What if it's just sort it out yourselves? The gimmick is no gimmick. It's The gimmick I mean, is fight it. Just fight. But can I turn giant? No. Can my Kangaskhan get an extra attack? No. Just kill each other. Just fight. <laughs> what if the gimmick was in the spirit of the four-player co-op, or four-player, yeah, four-player co-op, is that VGC doubles was now teams. Instead of you piloting four mons, it's you and a buddy each piloting two. Have you ever considered that gamers hate other gamers? But then, Lucas, we could have our own big number team. We could just build, like, you're just the, like, huh, why is your team half support and the other one weirdo? It's like, you'll see. And just, like, you're literally just, like, pumping me up. It's like, yes, more numbers. More numbers. Oh, that would actually be really fun. Oh, no, yeah, it would be fun. But we got to talk about the Pokemon. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the new the ones we got. Po- the three Pokemon we got... Um, what was, uh, I know two of them because two of them are loved and the other one is ignored. What was the electric one that they dropped? So there was Palmy. Palmy. That's the least liked, according yes. to the internet. Palmy is so, the least liked. I was a little disappointed, not because Palmy disappointed me, but because, well, I guess Palmy did disappoint me. I was hoping for something a little bit different. I think it's going to be, based on the size of its hands, I'm thinking it's going to be fighting electric. But it also gets natural cure, which is a fairy type associated ability. Uh, so that's that's a that's possible. Your natural cure, I guess, that does lean a little bit more fairy. I he's just he's just got stupid big paws. Yeah, I can see that. Um, what was it? for me? And then of course you had Smolliv. Smolliv is cute. Smolliv, I just want to evolve into like. I want there to be a in one game there's small live and another there's a bread Pokemon and you bring them together they evolve together to become an Olive Garden. That would and then business is flourished. Yeah, but but no, then it's just unlimited breadsticks because of an attack. It's kind of like in, there's an anime called Fate where there's an attack called Unlimited Blade Works where like you go into this dimension and there's like all these swords you can kill people with, or like there's another one that's literally just you open portals and swords fly at people. It's dumb anime nonsense. I just want small live's attack to be just all these portals opening up. And just bread. Just bread hitting just you. Just endle- endless breadsticks. Endless breadsticks. Enjoy. It's like alchemy, but with bread. Yes, uh, it's alchemy, but with bread. So I was talking with Don about Smoliv, and he brought up that some people on the internet were saying that they were hoping that it, it goes opposite from Smoliv, where it becomes like super buff and becomes Swoliv. <sighs> yes, please. Thank and you. in my mind, with that, 
I went to like a Greco-Roman wrestler design, like or inspiration called Swolev, which have is just you, a giant olive. Because they used to you, they used to win like pots of olive oil. Yeah. Have you ever played um, Street Fighter Four? A long time ago. One of the guys is a Turkish oil baron who just oils himself up. And one of his sayings like, looks like it's time to oil up. And he literally covers himself in oil. He wanted olive, olive oil? Like he covers himself in oil. Like Olive oil or oil oil? Uh, olive oil. Like okay. just like, grease stuff stuff. There's probably some fighting fan who's going to be typing in like, no, no, wrong. Like, I don't, I don't care. Somehow just, weirder. Like, but also, if you're looking for a good oil oil fight, you can go watch the original Transporter movie. Yeah, that was a pretty good movie. I like Transporter. That was Jason Statham was the man. Last and not least, farthest from the least. Lechonk. Uh Terminal Montage on YouTube did an amazing little short about all the Pokemon and like his he drew Lechonk like this horrifying hideous pig and it's amazing. But Lechonk uh bought the internet. The internet got Lechonk. It's amazing. They knew what they were doing when they gave it that name. Yeah, I mean, it also, it matches, I mean, we'll be doing an episode on food sooner rather than later, and we'll talk a bit more about it then, but lechon is a type of food found in the Philippines, and Spain kind of had a foothold in the Philippines, well, foot on the throat of the Philippines for 400 years, so, makes sense. Aromavale, see, we keep basing it off the abilities, but Aromavale also is typically fairy, right? Yeah. Only fairies have it, so. Lechon could become a normal fighting type, just because it is buff. Like, a wild hog is one of the most terrifying organisms on the planet. I'm thinking normal fairy. You really? What? I mean... But for the same reason that you think Palmy is electric fairy. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Again, it's based on the truffle-smelling pigs, which yeah. are pretty common out there and really, really cool. Um, If you actually learn about the science of truffle-smelling pigs. But otherwise, it's, uh, it's all right. I love Lechong. He's cute. Uh, let's see what they do with him. Is it going to be like Wulu where they evolved into something nobody likes? Maybe. But it's all good. Okay. Professors, yay or nay? Professors? Oh. We are a podcast that is focused on teaching E for E10 for everyone. That, that's kind of our standard here. My thoughts on these characters are these are not characters made for E10 for everyone. I think it's interesting that we get two professors. Like, like it's the it's that we now get a choice of the professor we want. One is return to monkey, and the other one is this. The future is now, old man. Yeah. Like, but like, oh my gosh! Like the internet lost their minds as they should. Look at them. That's I know the people internet. who are literally picking it off like the woman, like off of Scarlet, based on only seeing the professor. That one, like, yeah, her. I want a muscle wife. I would like muscle wife. Thank you. Yes. I, I I probably I am very much of the I despise the past let the past die sort of deal so I might go for Violet just because I like that they made the Giga Chad meme into a professor. Okay, Kylo Ren. <laughs> Look, man, have you ever you've seen the Giga Chad meme? He looks like the Giga Chad meme. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah, he looks like a Chad. He is the Giga Chad. They knew what they he were looks doing. Looks like he wants to sell me some NFTs. He looks like okay. Uh, one of the um, YouTube content creators, a Shady Penguin, he looks like him. He looks like a YouTube content creator. And, of course, we have the legendaries. Yes. Rhydon. Mm-hmm. And Miraidon. Honestly, we're going to be riding those Pokemon like motorcycle. It's it's Hot Wheels. That's what I said to you. Yeah, it is Hot Wheels. Or, like, it's the, the season of Yu-Gi-Oh! where they played card games on motorcycles. 
Coridon is like you don't like I know like the lizards have that kind of I don't know the the technical term but the like neck thing. Mhm. Like I get that. It's that's a wheel. That is a that is a rubber tire that you can like turn that thing into a zoid. Yeah. And then of course you have a freaking jet bike just driving around. I'm not fair I'm not bad mouthing any of them. I think they're fine designs. They yeah. look cool. If you look into the eyes of the tech one, they're like they're like pixelated, and that's really a nice touch that they added to it. I just know that I'm going to be riding those into battle. I'm I'm currently vibing with Maridon, and I think I'm gonna get uh between like without knowing any of the other because I can still be swayed without knowing any of the other exclusives. I'm leaning Violet right now. Yeah, I need to see the water types. Show me the water types. Let's go. This is what I do for a living now. I basically convinced the other day. I basically convinced the part of the marketing team. They're like, "Yeah, we could probably do a Pokemon thing here at this place, and it would be really great." And I'm like, "Yeah, no. If I can get more water types, then I'll keep winning." So all the anything Pokemon Go related. I know we kind of been rambling. Oh wait, we're getting a Pokemon Go TCG at the end of the month. How does that work? It's a it's an expansion set inspired by Pokemon Go. Oh, I saw a picture of the professors on that. Yeah. And there's actually some really cool, cool looking cards in this one where there's, they've got like the, the Pokestop one. They've got um, all the Kanto starters in the TCG. They're called Radiant right now, but shiny, uh, shiny Kanto starters. So as, as a big fan of Pokemon Go, I will probably try to complete this set. We'll see, I'll have to see how expensive that gets, but. I think some of the cards are pretty cool. Like, um, Blissey is literally defending a gym on its card because everyone threw Blissey's in gyms for the longest time. As you should. Look at all that HP. Anyways, all right. Well, that's a, a we, we talked for a while, but I think we should just let Madison take over for a little bit, Lucas. Yeah, let's leave it up to her and her buddy. All right. Take it away, Maddie. Hey everyone, uh, Madison here with the interview for this uh, week's episode. Uh, this week we're talking about video game localization and the localization process. So uh, real quick, I'm going to ask you if you could introduce yourself. Who are you and what is it that you do? Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Simone and I work as a freelance translator and localizer. I understand two words there. So I guess what is localization? Like what what is that? Like I've heard that term, but what does it mean? If you think of localization as an umbrella, uh, the, under this umbrella, there is translation, which honestly I think is what most people think of when they hear localization. Okay. Um, but then also uh, under this umbrella, you have cultural and technical adaptation. So you're you're taking a product or content made for one language and culture and and changing it so that it appeals to an audience in another language and culture okay um so what do you mean by like the the tech part i'm gonna go off script here for a second like what does that mean i don't understand that we talking like like how like the uk has different plugs than we do (laughs) i mean that is actually um an important part of localization um (laughs) i mean in like non-video game localization uh that's actually something i deal with a lot but um so in terms of you know the, the tech part with video games um that could mean 
making sure that uh, the software su supports, um, you know, different alphabets or characters like Cyrillic or, or Hiragana or Katakana or something instead of just the Latin alphabet. It could be, you know, making sure that, um, that voiceover is done correctly, um, things like that. So it's not just about, you know, translation, strictly speaking. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so how does someone get into localization? Like, how does that happen? Um, well, like any other uh, career, I guess, there are some different ways. Um, the path that I took, I, I studied uh, Russian translation in both undergrad and then my master's degree. Um, and then after that, I, I started um, working as a freelancer um, through different agencies that offered um, video game localization projects. Um, and, you know, you can, you can get into it without going through a master's program. Um, you can do different certifications for it. Um, there's, you know, various routes to take. Cool. So what kind of skills does it like involve to work in localization? You definitely want, um, you know, mastery of your native language, um, which, uh, in the industry we call the target language. So, um, for me, I work primarily Russian into English, uh, English being my native language. Um, and then Russian is what we call my source language and English is a target. Um, so yes, you need mastery of your target language, um, as well as a deep knowledge of the culture you're adapting for. Um, so English or American culture for me. Um, and then you should also, you know, of course, have an expert level knowledge of uh, your source language and culture. So in my case, that's Russian. Um, you, you should have these days um, a, a high proficiency in, in what we call cat tools, which just means computer assisted translation. Um, and it's not machine translation. It's not, it's not kittens? No, um, I mean you could be translating something about kittens, but no, sadly there are <laughs> there are no kittens involved in this in this process. No, yeah, cat tools are kind of ubiquitous. Um, you know, nobody just translates in a word document or on a piece of paper anymore. You you feed your cat tool, you know, files with with you know game dialogue or something, for instance, and it segments it into little chunks and. Um, as you're translating it, you, you save these segments into the cat tool, into your translation memory. And then, you know, if you get a similar segment later on, they'll say, oh, here's a, you know, 90% match uh, from this previous segment. Do you want to use part of your previous translation? And so it saves on efficiency and consistency. Okay, cool. I guess, as I, I mean, like, that's just to be expected, right? Like, as everything goes digital anyways? Yeah. And I mean, as part of that also, like with video game localization, you kind of have to have um, a basic understanding of coding. A lot of the times oh. you'll like get a huge Excel document from from the client and it'll have, you know, your, your segments of dialogue in it. And it also often has uh, tags in it, like the kind of tags that you see in HTML uh, code or something similar. And so you have to learn to work around that. So, like, does that even happen, like, with, like, anime films? Uh, with films, 
that's not really an issue. Because um, just like translating a script. Right. You're just either translating um, dialogue for the dubbing or maybe subtitles. Got it. Um, but with video games, uh, the the information is is bi-directional. So, you know, the, the, the game, sorry, is uh, maybe giving you several choices to progress in the story. And then you're, you're choosing one option and, um, you know, influencing the game as it goes forward. So um, that's an instance where when you're translating it, you're definitely going to see some kind of tag there to, you know, denote that there's different options. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So like, and I know we've talked about it a little bit so far, but like what kind of work is involved in this whole process then? Uh, well, uh, it depends on what stage of the process that you're, you're involved in. Okay. Um, for instance, I have primarily worked with the translation of text that's in game or dialogue. Um, but you might also be localizing, you know, the marketing campaign for a game, <laughs> which is entirely different. So, yeah, with my case, I, um, I work with cat tools, I work with Excel files um, and different things. Or, you know, if you're working with marketing, you might be working with, you know, different, you know, things like Photoshop or or InDesign. Got it. Either way. Um, research is a huge skill with localization. When you say research, do you mean like cultural research or like? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I mean. Um, say I'm working with a game where, you know, I know the genre pretty well. Maybe it's a fantasy RPG and I come across a description and it's pretty clear to me. But for whatever reason, maybe I don't know like the nuances between a rapier and a small sword. Um, And so I either need to know how to find reliable resources that are, that are going to help me solve this terminology problem, or um, I need to, you know, know how to find somebody who can help me, you know, as, as that's their level of, or sorry, area of expertise. So um, yeah, you have to be able to, you know, research all kinds of things, whether whether it's terminology or, um, you know, cultural preferences and demographics, things like that. So I did hear you mention really quick um, about, you know, interacting with other people. Then would you say that this is a career then that does require, uh, how do I put it? It does require like a lot of, uh, a lot of like social interaction then? Uh, for me, definitely no. And okay. I would <laughs> probably say no for other localizers as well. Okay. Um, it's very Swing and much... a miss, Madison. Swing and a miss. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, you're mostly, you know, working with your computer and, you know, sure, you might reach out to colleagues or other professionals, but it's definitely not... Um, something where you're talking to clients usually got it if you're like a project manager that that might be uh more typical for you but uh if you're working on the localization um you know as one of many localizers no so what is the goal of localization like what's the purpose of it i think this is actually a really good question um 
Yeah. And I would, <laughs> I would boil it down to um, the main goal is that players will feel like the game was developed for them, for their language. Oh. Uh, you don't want them to feel as if it's a secondhand, you know, this is obviously a game from another country kind yeah. of game. You want them to have as authentic an experience as possible. Okay. Yeah, we talked about that uh, a little bit at um, at the convention we were at, that like, especially with video games, that like immersion is such an important part of like the entire thing. <laughs> Absolutely. That if your audience doesn't feel like immersed, that that you're not doing a good job. (laughs) Yes. Um, And because, you know, these games are all about interactivity and immersion, any asset that you're localizing has the potential to sort of break that immersion. Well, and that's why, like, when we were talking about it, that, like, Game Freak put so much effort into the world design for that same reason. So what kind of training does localization like require? It's not, I like, I've heard you talk a little bit about like tech skills and your background education and translation. Like what else is involved in that? Like what other kinds of education or, you know, how else can someone get into it besides formal education? Uh, Sure. I will say um, if you do pursue formal education for localization and translation, um, because it's, relatively new as an academic discipline. Um, Like some programs are focused more on like the theoretical side of things, um, whereas, you know, others might offer more practical courses like the one I did uh, where we actually, you know, had classes about software localization and project management. But anyway, um, outside of that, you can if you're already proficient in um, a couple languages and you, you know, have a pretty good familiarity with, with gaming, um, if you're looking for game localization, you can pursue ATA uh, certification. That's the American Translators Association. Um, and they're sort of the, the main governing body in the U.S. that, that says, yes, you know, these, these translators have proven that they can produce quality work. So, so that's really common. A lot of, of translators in the U.S. either have some kind of related degree or they pursue ATA certification. And then, you know, also you can just, you know, say you have at least an undergrad degree. You can certainly, you know, apply for localization positions with different agencies and you know, see, see if yeah. they're willing to, to show you the ropes. Okay. So it is like, like, I know that my uh, ex-girlfriend that runs like Jared, you know, the jewelry company, <laughs> she's in charge of their entire like digital division, <laughs> but like her degree is like in English. So like for her is just kind of like she needed a degree and then kind of like got there. <laughs> yeah. So I know like, so, cause I mean, obviously being in education, it's so different that everything is specialized training. So for me, it's kind of like, oh, okay, like, what exactly can you have to get into this field? Yeah, it's it's different for anyone. I I thought I was ready after undergrad for freelancing translation and localization, and I, I really struggled um, to break into the industry, actually. And then, you know, once I started 
in my master's program, I realized, oh no, I was not ready. Like there was so much that I did not know about. (laughs) (laughs) I was not prepared. No. So, so I'm, I'm glad I did that. You were adulting. Got it. Um, (laughs) so when did localization like begin? Like what is the history of the career and industry? Like what examples might our listeners be familiar of from the past? Um, well, localization I know itself. A lot right there, sorry. I mean, localization is very, very much hinging on technology right now. So, because of that, uh, it's it's newer. I would say, solidly, you could say it's it's about thirty years old. Though, of course, you know, people have uh, translated very early video games and other media prior to you know that thirty year mark. Um, it's, it's really a matter of perspective. It's just exploded in the past 10 to 15 years. And now because of advancements in technology and globalization, people are, are realizing that we have the tools to, to you know, share, for instance, any video game that's made in Japan or in Russia or, or anywhere with, with the rest of the world. As far as popular examples um, that have been localized into English, um, I would say, you know, that might include Final Fantasy, Legend of Zelda, Pokemon, of course. Um, No way. The Witcher games, which, you know, I could go on and on about, but in the best way, not in a critical way. Um, So those are probably the most popular. There have been a lot, uh, though, so it's it would be impossible to list them all. Well, I was just more like curious, is there like, do we consider some of the older like translation stuff, like localization too? Like, you know, like when Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would consider it um, localization if they are taking cultural adaptation into account. If it's, you know, something where they're just producing a literal translation, I would be hesitant to include that. Got it. Okay. So you heard it here. We cannot include most extreme elimination challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's really interesting is like, I've seen, (laughs) I love dairy. Eight eight people out of all of our listeners got that joke. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So what has been your experiences with localization? Uh, My experience has um, I mean, do you mean in terms of do I like it or, or uh, more of what the, have I worked yeah, on? Yeah, what have you worked on? Okay. Um, well, this part is interesting because unfortunately, as a freelancer, when you accept a translation or localization job from an agency mm-hmm. uh, rather than a direct client, you usually are required to sign an NDA, an office closure oh, agreement. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, my so, apology. No, no, it's fine, but it's it's really kind of tragically common in the industry. I meant more of like like what types of projects, like video games, oh, sure. movies, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you can't disclose, you know, the actual titles. Um, but yeah. um, I've worked on uh, some mystery and some hidden object games. There was a post-apocalyptic zombie first-person uh, shooter MMO. Uh, that was interesting. A lot of curse words. 
And also, um, I've done some heavily text-based fantasy RPGs. Okay. Yeah, no, I understand you can't disclose what. That's fine. Because <laughs> you and I have talked a little bit about it. Um, sure. No, I just, so it's like I one guess of those like, industry quirks that's annoying, you know? I guess my next question of what games have you worked on is completely irrelevant then. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the work like on the games that you have worked on? What was it like? Um, in terms of the nitty-gritty, uh, you know, you get usually an Excel sheet full of the in-game text and it's taken entirely out of context. Good agencies will, you know, give you some description of what what's happening in the scene or they might send you pictures. A lot of agencies don't. Sometimes they'll answer questions about what's happening. Sometimes they don't. So you kind of um, have to trust your instincts and hope it's, you know, not... Uh, completely different from what you're imagining. Um, so you're working uh, with the segments and um, some of them are pretty straightforward. Sometimes they'll ask you to like translate poetry, which is a pain, um, but um, it's it's fun, honestly. Uh, you see all kinds of, of different um, situations. You see regional dialects and you have to think about, oh, do I want to, you know, make this sound Southern American or do I just want to, you know, keep it sort of more normal? What do I want to do with this? <laughs> you mean people <laughs> yeah. can actually go around saying, I like shorts. It happens. Oh, it does happen. Okay, well, that's, that's weird. I don't think I've ever seen that. One of the most interesting problems I had recently okay. was you had to make this anagram. I'm sorry, not an anagram. Um, acronym? That's it. An acronym um, with this organization name. And the acronym in Russian was Pomidor, which just means tomato. And I could not think of a good acronym for tomato. <laughs> so I had to change it to olive. Oh, God. And, you know, you're changing fruits to vegetables and what else does this impact? So even small choices like that can impact like a <laughs> the, the criminal forward. organization is no longer tomato. It's olive. Yes. <laughs> it was also just a really strange organization name because in Russian it translated to the Progressive Society for Methodical and Conscientiously Organized Work. <laughs> it's a lot. So how do you want to change that for the English audience? With a lot of effort. <laughs> yes, it was a lot of effort. I spent a long time thinking about it. <laughs> okay, so what kinds of things do you need to know uh, about like your culture when you're doing localization? Well, uh, I will definitely say you need to know slang and, you know, just normal everyday language uh, because... The language that you encounter in video games is not like textbook language. Got it. Uh, yeah. Um, you need to know all sorts of things. Um, sometimes it comes down to, you know, does this color have a particular meaning in one culture and an entirely different meaning in another? Um, <laughs> it's very nuanced. So why do like translators sometimes make like weird quotes or sentences during the localization process? Um, I think generally uh, that that's usually a result of either 
the translator did not understand the source text and they weren't given good context or, you know, sometimes maybe they, I mean, like, you know, what's the famous one? All your base are belong to us. Yeah. I mean, that one sounds to me, that sounds like someone who is not a native speaker of English translated it, which is, you know, a different problem. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could probably, you know, write that one off as, is sounding like machine <laughs> translation. Although machine translation has gotten way better. <laughs> I mean, as you mean like as like AI and stuff gets smarter or? Oh, well that also, um, I mean, this is an entirely different discussion, but machine translation has like gone through so many um, phases of evolution in the past decade where they, it operates by different rules now. So you know, obviously you're, you can't like get a perfect text when you put something into machine translation, but it's vastly improved. Then. I really love some of the bad translations. Oh, they're hilarious. I mean, like uh, I found one how from a Gundam game that it says, congratulations for complete of your mission. Now is the time half past of this game. If you want to continue to play, press return key. If you want a good laugh, you should look up this book called Press Start to Translate. Okay. Um, by Clive Mandolin. And it's basically his experience translating Final <laughs> Fantasy IV. And it's it's priceless. Just a really good laugh. I guess my last uh, major question here is then, like, why should someone go into localization? I would say that... Like, sell it to us. Sure. If you really love video games... And you also love working with languages, definitely go into localization. If you feel neutral about video games and you're a good translator, sure, consider localization. It's really interesting, never boring. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really a, a good way to, to use your language skills to, you know, also share games with, with other parts of the world that, that otherwise would not get to experience them. And you, you honestly learn a lot in the process about, about the culture that it's coming from and how to you know, translate that experience and make it resonate with, with people in, in the target language. Last question is a surprise question. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what has been your favorite experience with localization? Uh, my favorite experience like that I've worked on directly or just in general? In general. I mean, how about both? Both? Okay. Both is good. Uh, my favorite that I've worked on uh, was probably I uh, when I was working on uh, this one hidden object game and I had to go down this whole research rabbit hole about a particular term and... And I was like, okay, I'm just going to download this game and play it and see if I can figure it out. And then I got addicted to this game for like the next five days. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it did help, it did help with yeah. uh, figuring the problem out. But... Mom, are you busy? Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sorry, sweetheart. Mom's busy. <laughs> I'm playing this game for work. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, you can't really tell us about any projects you have coming up, can you? No, not really. Okay. So just be looking. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll be working on another project at some time. At some time. <laughs> well, if they also want to enjoy your great skills, I know that you uh, later are, are will be on the Flaming Dice. I'm gonna yes, keep, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep trying to sell it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, that was a blast and uh, definitely interesting. Well, thank you so much. It was fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. So uh, we'll uh, we'll be in touch and we'll talk to you again. All right. So um, obviously this was not like your typical Pokemon episode, like we said at the beginning, but it is important to understand that when we get our games the way we do, you got to appreciate those people who localize it for us. Like it's not easy and they will make mistakes. And if they make a mistake, you will probably notice. Yeah. But like, it's important. It's important work that you get art as far as you can and games as far as you can. And you need localizers like that. And it's not always going to be like as dumb as the four kids localization. Those people were, were idiots, stupid donut rice ball. People couldn't even know what a rice ball was in America. Like, mm, these are jelly donuts. Eats rice ball. Still one of the best memes of our time. I don't think I know that one, but that's okay. It's it's a long story. Brock was eating rice balls, and they oh, called them donuts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's dumb. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll have a lecture next week. Uh, it'll be definitely Pokemon related. We've got some great recommendations. People dropped fire types on us. People dropped food ones. We'll definitely be going into those again. Thank you so much. We have so many plans, and then someone drops these in our laps. It's like, Chris. We can wait. Yeah, we can wait. We'll, we'll definitely have to talk about Smolov and Lechonk again. because that's We will. What, yeah. We will. Once we, when, when the time comes. Yes, when the time comes, we'll preheat the oven. Mm. Olive oil and, and pig, man. Yeah, it works. Olive oil is great, man. Olive oil is like the best thing to cook with next to butter. But on that note, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a wonderful rest of your day or night. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.